Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 3, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 21. Stop the salon, we need to get out of town. We need to hightail and move it, shit is gonna go down. Napoleon's getting physical, going out of control. Ah, where's Andre Bolkonski? Ah, it's time for us to leave. Cause tonight we take our flight, don't know who's gonna win. Be Russian or you French, grab your cousins and kin. So get up and shut up, cause the city smells like a roast. It smells like a roast. Oh, oh, evacuating Moscow. Oh, oh, I think cannonballs are dropping now. Oh, oh, stop, this war is killing me. Hey, Mr. Bezukov, can't you keep me safe and sound? Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back once more to Drink and Read, the War and Peace Recap Podcast. Where we last left each other, fellow Tolstolians, the war was going on and the Battle of Borodino was front and center. We saw how Andre started the battle as bored and itching for action, was hit in the side with a cannonball, is on death's door, and saw how Anatole Karagin's leg got amputated from him. While this was happening, at the center of the battlefield, one Pierre Bezukhov bumbled his way out of danger once more, and realized when seeing a horse dragging itself and its own entrails that war is a terrible thing, and the higher-ups on both the Russian and the French side cannot come to terms with who has won this war because the immense amount of lives that have been lost on both sides. Napoleon is on the cusp of admitting defeat, but something tells me that he's going to get a second wind and make a beeline for Moscow today. However, as always, before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's section, we have two sections to bring to the front of everybody's attention. The first of which being the appendices, where I point out the mistakes that I made along the path that I've taken. And first off, I apologize. I've been pronouncing it adjutant my whole life, when really it's spelled adjutante. Sorry. I know, parlez-vous français. So if I continue to mispronounce that word and many others, please forgive me. Other than that, the chapters that we read last week were very short and they flew by quickly. I'm sure I mispronounced the places around Borodino, but I believe that I did keep things succinct. And that's interesting because even though we have 21 chapters to get through today, they're all or mostly very, very short. So I think it should be a similar feel to last week's episode. And the second section of Drink and Read, since it's Drink and Read, what am I drinking today? I don't know if you know this about myself, but I'm an iced tea connoisseur from Snapple to Arizona. Today I'm drinking a nice Gold Peak Tea Lemon, real brewed, and it's a little bit sweet for my taste. I usually don't go with the sweetened teas, but I guess it's fine because today we are going to be defending the very Gold Peak of Russia, Moscow. That was a stretch. If I had to rate this gold peak tea out of five lemons, I would give it 2.75 lemons. Yeah, two or three. But as the saying goes, when God gives you lemons, let's make warfare. Continuing on with War and Peace, get out your books, your spectacles, and let us begin. In Volume 3, Part 3, Chapter 1, Tolstoy takes another left turn, and instead of updating us on, you know, the life status of some of the major characters we've been exposed to, he decides to give us a lesson in philosophy involving Achilles, a turtle, and time. There's this old theory that was proposed that if Achilles, a very quick runner, uh, prior to the heel incident, I assume, is racing a turtle, and that turtle has a 10-minute start, that that turtle will always be ahead of Achilles if they move at the same pace. It's confusing, because I think that Achilles could overtake a turtle, but they're talking about in this nebulous world where time doesn't really function that way. They move at the same pace. There's no way that he can overtake the turtle distance-wise. Okay, sure, fine. 
Tolstoy has brought this up because of the ways that humans have created divisions in time. So he uses the example of the war that's being fought. Most people will give the war a start date and an end date, but Tolstoy proposes that if we don't pay attention to what happened before and what's happening after, then it nulls and voids any really meaning from that war. Then he brings on calculus, and dear readers, math has always been my worst subject in school, so my eyes kind of glazed over during this section, but uh, math is cool, and you need math for everything. He proposes that we combine calculus with history to make historical, mathematical predictions, insinuations, and explanations for the events of these powerful people's lives. That was a sentence, I know. Forgive me. In more basic terms, so my small brain can understand that, I want to assume that he means taking the minutiae of people like Napoleon's live life and breaking it down even further so we can make uh, more sense out of why he did these actions in the first place. Tolstoy then talks directly to us, the reader, and says that the millions of wills created Napoleon in the war are also the millions of wills that survived the war and overcame Napoleon. He makes a few analogies here, yet again bringing up the watch metaphor that he sees the hand strike the ten and hears the bells in the church ring out, but even then he can't assume that that's the legitimate ten, and he can't conclude that the movement of the hand inspired the bells to ring at that exact moment. He can't assume that. And then he brings up a locomotive, I hear the whistle and see the wheels move, but I can't assume that that is what actually, like, the whistle is the basis for the movement of the train. Tolstoy states, in that case, we can't view these generals, these kings, these great people of the world as the sole controllers of history. We have to look at the greater picture and the people that are, you know, the common people who are far more numerous, numerous because they control the events. And this IMO is sound reasoning. I agree with that. I think there are greater stories not being told from the perspective of average Joe and Betty Beercan. Chapter 2, Tolstoy gives us, or at least the narrator gives us a little recap of what happened, how the French have pushed forward, and they have fought at Smolensk and Borodino, and then eventually the French reach Moscow, and for a time there is no war, there is just this tense atmosphere pervading the air. After Borodino, though, and the French just sitting there... Every Russian assumes that they've won the war, and Kutuzov has stated that he's going to attack again, and sends a letter to Emperor Alexander going, this victory is assured. However, Kutuzov and the Russians realize that there is a problem in this attack. There were far more Russians killed than what they initially thought, so they cannot carry out a battle. On the opposite side of things, the French, they're up and raring to go. They are on a momentum. It may be a downward momentum since they lost a lot more than they predicted, but they feel like they can shove the Russians out of the way and take Moscow, and this is exactly what they do. Since their army is so much bigger than the Russians, the Russians have no choice but to retreat, leave Moscow behind, and have the French take it. And the taking of Moscow is a huge deal that we're going to delve on in the next few chapters of this volume. It also goes hand in hand with Tolstoy's theory that he's proposed in section one that we can't take a clock for the face of the clock, it's the gears controlling the clock, or the people within that stories really matter in this scenario. Another example, Kutuzov is going on the retreat after sending this victory letter and wonders how he can go one day from being, you know, holding the French by the neck, ready to end the war, and then the next day retreating from the city that they wanted to protect this whole time. Was this all predestined? In Tolstoy's opinion, yes, but perhaps the fate of the minor people could affect this way still. Also, dang, Tolstoy, I didn't sign up for a philosophy class right now. I thought that happened in your postscript for the novel. But it's much appreciated. I'm not going to harp too hard on you, Tolstoy. Love ya. Chapter 3, rewind the clock just a bit as the Russians are preparing to decide whether to defend Moscow or to retreat further into Russia. The Russian army is camping at the gates of Moscow at a place called Philly. And no, my Americans, that's not Philly. It's with an F. There's no cheesesteak here. Kutuzov is sitting in the middle of all these generals spewing nonsense about how they're going to come up with the perfect plan to defend Moscow and beat the Russians in one fell swoop. Swoop. Oh, I'm tongue-tied today, forgive me. 
And Kutuzov is doing his normal thing of just sitting in the room and trying to feel out the atmosphere because he's so experienced and he knows that all these men are more bark than bite and what they're saying is just blowing smoke up each other's ass for prestige and power. And Kutuzov gleams and he's very upset about it, sad. We've seen he's an emotional person that even with all this bravado among the generals that defending Moscow is impossible. None of them will be able to do it. Benningson, who's ever the ultimate dick, proposes a plan that he's going to defend Moscow, and Kutuzov sees through this and says, if it does fail, he's just going to place the blame on my head. And even while he's thinking ahead about these men raking his name through the mud in future, he can only look internally and blame himself and ask, how did I let Napoleon get as far as Moscow in the first place? When really, we've known Kutuzov throughout the whole novel, and he has tried his best at every opportunity to be a good general and a good human being. And to end the chapter, Kutuzov comes to the realization that no one can decide this but him. He knows how Napoleon acts, he'll take control of the army, and he has to give the seemingly impossible order that these Russians abandon Moscow. And that he does, saying that he can only control and protect his own fate. Very sad. Pour one out for Kutuzov. Chapter 4 is an odd little chapter told by from the perspective of the six-year-old Malasha. Her cottage in the outskirts of Moscow is being used as a headquarters for the generals, and she is reacting with childlike innocence as all these men are coming into her home. And Malasha comments that of all the men here, Kutuzov closely resembles a grandfather, and he seems to be struggling with something emotionally and physically. Very emotionally perceptive for a six-year-old, mind you. Kutuzov turns very angry very quickly when they're accusing him of abandoning Moscow, when he yells and says, like, what other option do we have? I don't want to do it as much as you do, but we need to prevent this war from going any further, and I can't stop them here. There is a debate being had about a tentative uh, counterattack on the French forces, and Malasha is just saying that this is a one-sided battle. It is Grandpa or Kutuzov versus the long skirts or all the other generals around him. After shattering probably physical and mental dishes, Kutuzov says, Gentlemen, it is I that's going to have to pay for this crockery, and with my power granted to me by the sovereign, I am ordering a retreat, and there's nothing you can do about that. Malasha goes about her daily business, and Kutuzov sits back and goes, How did it come to this again? He's been repeating this, but in this, he hopes that the Moscow will become almost like a prison for the French. They'll stay there and the winter will overtake them. And then they'll resort to eating horse flesh, just like the Turks. If only it can work out that way. I guess Malasha is here to provide a perspective to the common Russian people. And it makes sense. Um, the eyes of the young looking at the experienced eyes of a general, you know, there's a little bit of that give and take here. Perhaps she's a symbol of Russia herself. At least that's what I think a literary professor might say. But I promised I wouldn't go there on this podcast, so onwards and upwards. Chapter 5 takes us into the city walls of Moscow, where we see that the residents are setting their town on fire so the French can't have it. Include your uh, daily recommended Sherman here. And we get um, a bird's eye view of the city burning and go into the mental space of the mayor of Moscow, Rastopichin. Rastopachin, as most elected officials go, is just that, an elected official, and they never seem to make the best calls, do they? And here he's basically said that anyone who's burning down Moscow and fleeing in fear is a traitor to their country and their city, and he organizes his own personal militia to take care of this, and that doesn't sound like the best plan. But in the grander scheme of things, we see that the Russian residents of Moscow, and in fact a lot of cities like Smolensk and cities we've seen prior, have burned down their own towns and cities in a common social consciousness, saying that it's better to let it burn than to let it be corrupted by the French. Rastopachin, meanwhile, is telling lies that he's going to gather his private militaristic force and fight off the French himself. He's burning things not out of fear that the French will have it, but out of common Russian decency. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but there's a politician lying to appear better to the public eye. Hmm. Chapter 6 sees the return of the hellacious... 
Helene, fan favorite of War and Peace, and she's got herself in a bit of a conundrum between a lot of men because she's so beautiful. She's been hopping back and forth between St. Petersburg and Villeneuve, and in St. Petersburg, she's kind of fallen for this high-up, very important person who we can assume is a bit older, you know, nearer to croaking, has a lot of money, and meanwhile in St. Petersburg, she's fallen for a very foreign prince, but if you neglect to remember, she is a married woman to Count Pierre Bezukhov. While this situation may bother a lot of other women, Helene goes, no, this makes me very intelligent. I have two men and a husband that I don't love fighting over me. The world is my oyster. But we know that Helene isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. She just uses her looks to get her way. Helene is playing the part of the innocent young woman in this relationship and saying, it only comes down to what God wants of me. She turns on the waterworks and says, like, oh no, if only there was some way that I could leave the husband that doesn't love me, but dang this darned religion of mine. Oh wait, Catholicism, you say? So Helene is brought to a Catholic service or two, and she is in complete tears. She feels like she has the grace of God bestowed upon her. She is forgiven all her sins and absolution and confession. And then a few days later, it's revealed that she is an honorary Catholic and the Pope should be sending, you know, the affirmation letter in the mail anytime soon. That was some Catholic Express if I ever saw it. Hey, but if the Pope sends you mail, is it host post? Ah... And yet Helene reveals some cunning here. She believes, and factually so, that the Jesuits are using this new conversion of Helene, very witch woman, to Catholicism to get some of her money. But she says she's gonna make, um, you know, work hard for that money, as Donna Summer once said. And she figures that if she divorces Pierre Besikov through the paperwork and, you know, the prenups and whatever, that her money's gonna be in flux for a while, making it harder for these uh, preachers to get their hands on the coins. And the abbot she's talking to goes on a thing like, oh, this is clearly a mortal sin that you married Pierre in the first place because you did it not knowing or doing it in a vain way. But if you marry a new person with the intent of having children with them, then that sin could be forgiven. And Helene wittily retorts, where has this wit been throughout the whole book, Helene, that if she wasn't, you know, signing up for that religion in the first place and is a true Catholic follower now, then the first religion she followed, which should be the Russian Orthodoxy, the laws shouldn't apply to her. Did Helene manage to be the original Karen? In chapter 7, Helene realizes that two men after her heart while she's already married isn't going to pay off in the long run of things, so she's gonna have to be a bit sneaky about the situation too. But a divorce is a no-no back in this time, at least in Helene's original religion, so she decides to spin the story and become her own PR executive. No, 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 the story isn't, I want a divorce, the story is, which of these two men will I marry? Um, isn't that just deflecting the topic of divorce in the first place? Would say any sensible person, but 9 out of 10 people in St. Petersburg believe this and go, Oh, what a great question! I don't know which one's better for you. Maybe this guy, maybe this guy. Thank God there's one person in St. Petersburg circles who doesn't believe this lie and sees through this fallacy in none other than Maria Dmitrievna. And she shows up to a salon one day, calls at Helene from across the room and goes, Oh, you want to get married while you're still married? People have invented that. You see it exists in the... And there's a blank in the passage here, but I assume that Maria Dmitrievna meant brothel or whorehouse. This is taken at first as a joke, but then people start thinking maybe there's some truth in what she said. Prince Vasily, Helene's dad as world's worst dad, only sees it as an opportunity to further, you know, enhance the coffer storage. And says, Helene, do whatever you want, must, but don't bring me into this and follow your own heart. But if it should pay off in the long run, remember me as your dear old dad. Thanks, dad. Bilibin, who hasn't popped up since the beginning of the novel, is joking with Helene, saying, Why don't you marry both of them? Marry the old one first, and then when he dies, marry the younger one. That way you get a two-for-one special and all the money. Bilibin does bring up another stopping point, what will Pierre say about this? And Helene shrugs this off going, he loves me, he'll do anything for me, he'll let me get a divorce and marry any number of men that I want. 
and then talk about the apple not falling far from the tree, Helene's mother, Princess Karagin, comes in. And if you remember from way back when she got engaged to Pierre in the first place, she's super jealous of Helene's youth and beauty. So she goes, Helene, this cannot be done. Look at this passage from the Bible. You're going to be immoral if you get a divorce. And as she's screaming at his daughter, this French young prince, one of Helene's to-be divorcee new husbands, comes into the room and Princess Kuragin is smitten. She goes, what a looker. Maybe I can, you know, get hooked up with one of his friends, Helene, maybe? And she immediately forgets this whole feud that they have been having together. And Helene, already at the pinnacle of this emotional roller coaster, invents the text message breakup by sending Pierre a letter to his house when he's at war in Borodino saying, I'm gonna get a divorce, bye, see you later. That's it. Honestly? Well, we never said she was classy, and this proves that point. Speaking of Pierre, when last we saw him, he saw a dead horse dragging itself, nearly got in a fight with a Frenchman, was taken prisoner, slash took a prisoner, and was running for his life, realizing that war is stupid. Let's catch up with him in chapter 8. One day of war and one near-death experience has caused Pierre to drop everything and want to go back to his normal, boring life. If I had a soundboard, here is where I would insert the, uh, duh, sound effect. With the Benny Hill track playing in the distance, Pierre is scrambling for an escape, but there's nowhere to go. It's an open battlefield and cannons and bullets are still flying. People are dying. Not a pretty sight. His corpulent form trots two miles and then he passes out and falls asleep on the ground in a very startled, shaky sleep because he's worried that he's going to get hit by a cannonball. Three soldiers walk by, they set up camp, start making some gruel, and the smell immediately awakens Pierre like he's a fucking Scooby-Doo. And these soldiers explain, we'll share our food with you, buddy, but first tell us your story. Are you an honest man? And this sends Pierre into an emotional spiral again. Been there, done that. And Pierre takes the unique strategy of lying about his status. He goes, oh, I'm actually in charge of a regiment, but they're not here right now. I'm totally not a noble. That's why I'm dressed like this. Yeah, can I have some food, please? Out the door goes his Freemason's promise not to lie and benefit his fellow man. After Pierre gets some food in his stomach and is lit by the campfire, the soldiers realize that he is a nobleman and he is completely lost. They ask him where he's going. He goes to Mas Highisk, most Highisk, and the soldiers go, okay, follow us, buddy. We'll take you home. You seem to be lost on this battlefield, Grandpa. These gentlemen walk into the dawn and then Pierre stumbles upon a very full inn and his groomsman who's sitting there, the person running his horse and carriage, and they're just startled that Pierre has, you know, arrived here on foot, let alone survived the battle. He bids goodbye to these friends he just made, saying that he should give them something, searching his pockets. But another voice goes, no, you shouldn't. Since there's nowhere for him to sleep, he decides to rough it up in his carriage and sleep there for the night. Poor baby. I'm thinking maybe you should have gave these soldiers something, Pierre, to show your, um, generosity. Chapter 9, as we know, when Pierre sleeps, he has some crazy, crazy dreams, and same, I understand that completely. The night terrors never stop, so chapter 9 is devoted to that. In his first dream, Pierre is surrounded once more by the Battle of Borodino, dead bodies, blood, and bullets, and of course this isn't a dream, this is a nightmare, so this startles him awake. He struggles to find sleep once more, imagining that he just wants to be a simple soldier and not have to deal with the death and violence that comes with the job description. In this dream, he's at a dinner party with a very fun cavalcade of characters. Sitting around the table drinking and singing are Dolotkov, Anatol, and Denyazov, three of Pierre's rivals throughout his life, whether it be in war, in his hand, or just in social status and how they make him feel. Also at this table is his original messianic mentor, Torzhok. Haven't seen you in a while, buddy. Because the last time he saw him, well, he was dead, and I would feel the same about the other people in this dream, or, you know... We know Anatole lost a leg. How's Dolokhov doing and how's Denyazov doing? Maybe this is just a reconvenience of ghosts. Pierre thinks that Torzok is saying something really important to him but can't overhear him because the other three jugheads are laughing and singing in the background. 
And at the same time, there's this camaraderie going on at this dining event, wherever they exist in Pierre's mind. And before he rises up and gives them a talking to or joins them, he realizes that he's shoeless, barefoot, and tries to hide this fact and wake up. Um, I don't know, maybe class distinctions going on there. He's not part of the masses or the army. He's a bootless bill. I don't know. Pierre wakes up once more, realizes that it's still a bit more until the sun comes up and goes to sleep once again. In this last and final dream, Pierre hears a voice, and this voice reveals to him the secrets of the universe that he can't quite remember. But it all trickles down to the tie-in phrase, we need to hitch up, we need to band together. And it turns out, when Pierre stumbles awake once more, that the coachman and other people are hitching up carriages to one another. So, was this the universe reaching out to Pierre, or was the real world influencing the dream? As is often the case in dreams, after he wakes up, Pierre says, if only I had just slept for two more minutes, I would have understood everything and been able to solve every problem that I and the world has ever experienced before. But alas, I'm forgetting the dream already. On with my day. Pierre, confused, tired, and lost in life, starts walking down the road back to Moscow by foot, and on the way, in a way to leave off this chapter on a cliffhanger, huh, he hears that Andre has died. An unceremonious, off-screen death? Could it be true? I don't know. We're gonna have to keep reading to find out, but that would be some way to go. Also, squeeze into this last sentence of the chapter is... Also, his brother-in-law is dead, so Pierre has lost Anatole Karagin. Last we saw him, he was getting a leg amputated. But Anatole, unfortunately, is dead. Since Anatole was dead, I wonder about Dolokhov and Denyazov. Chapter 10, Pierre arrives back in Moscow, only to find it a complete military state, ruled over with an iron fist by Mayor Rastopichin. Since Pierre is very high up and well-to-do, the mayor desires his advice, so Pierre races over there. Mayor Rastopchin is delusional and believes that Moscow can be defended, even though everyone around him is saying this is physically impossible, we have to inform the people in the city so they can get out. Rastopchin is stopping this news because he doesn't want to decrease morale and make himself look bad in the eyes of his people. Pierre is thumbing through some bullshit propaganda and tells Rastopchin that he had been on the front lines of battle. Pierre saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears that this is impossible, we have to get them out of the city, but Rostovichin is instead finding scapegoats to place the blame on. One such scapegoat is a young boy by the name of Vereshechig, and his father is there pleading for his release because it is not going to go well for him that he's in custody for being a French spy and treason against Russia. And Rostopichin is making up all these lies to accuse the innocent, just to shift the blame over. It's not a very becoming look. Let us remember Vereshechegin, though, because oh, it's not pretty what happens to him soon. Chapter 11, Rostopchin summons Pierre to his personal quarters, and before he, Pierre can even say a word in edgewise, Rostopchin goes, We've heard of your many exploits, but you're certainly not a Freemason, aren't you? Because I hate the Freemasons. They're eliminating all that I want Russia to stand for, and Pierre admits, I am a Freemason. Rastopchin is going on a tirade about the Freemasons, but isn't delivering any actual information to Pierre, so Pierre's just sitting there confused and calm at the same time. The mayor hints strongly that the Freemasons are going to be his next target and advises Pierre to quit being a Freemason and then drops the news bomb. Is it true that Helene's a Catholic now? And Pierre has no idea what's going on, storms off in a huff, and proceeds to go home. On his return home, he thinks to himself, should I start packing to leave Moscow because the mayor wants me out of town? And he is bombarded by questions by tons of people who are waiting for his advice and counsel. Very well-to-do in society would do that. When they've finally gone late into the night, he reads Helene's letter and I imagine has an emotional breakdown, is overwhelmed by the news that Andre is dead, his wife is leaving him, has changed religion, Moscow is going to be attacked and burned, and he falls asleep on the bed fully clothed. When he wakes up the next morning, instead of going to greet the many people who are there once again to ask his 
advice, he sneaks out the back door and none of his servants, no one in the house, knows or understands where Pierre has gone. And it is said in the sentence, not till the ransacking of Moscow would anyone know where Pierre truly went. I mean, we all have those points every day, every week, every month, every year that we just want to get up and leave. So I can totally understand what Pierre is going through. He's so emotionally overwhelmed by this that the only reasoning he can find is to leave. Just get out of there. Chapter 12, with Pierre out of the picture for a bit, let's turn back to the Rostovs and see how they're dealing with this scenario. They are still in Moscow, refusing to get out because they're waiting for Petya to come home, who had previously joined the militia. Countess Rostov, much like any mom in this situation having two sons at war, can't find enough to do with herself. She's distraught, she wants to get them back and leave, and she's pacing, sleepless, very worried and upset. She has a very I-don't-care-much-for-Job moment and realizes that she thought she loved Nikolai the best because it was, you know, he was her oldest boy, but then she's reminiscing on Petya breaking things in the house and being a bratty, uh, snub-nosed child, and then goes, you know what, I think I loved him the most of all and I want him back safe and sound. Sonia, Natasha, and Count Rostov can do nothing to quell her upset nature, as she has previously loved them all and would be, uh, you know, thankful for their company. She shoves them away and goes, I only want Petya. Petya finally shows up on the 28th of August. Meanwhile, the French are going to invade on the 1st of September, and they're just twiddling their thumbs, watching the wounded come into the city, going like, what should we do? Um, Rostovs, I love you guys. You need to get out of there. The family's busying themselves, in quotes, pretending that they're going to move out of Moscow. Count Rostov is out collecting rumors every day. Countess Rostov is trying to put things in storage, but really worrying about Petya. The only one that's doing any sort of preparation is Sonia, and she's so distraught because she got the letter from Nikolai after rescuing Princess Mary, and she's upset that that relationship's there. And Countess Rostov just wants to gloat and shove it in Sonia's face without necessarily doing that, but she goes, oh, that's a great match for him. Too bad you suck. Sonia's extremely sad, but she sees that the only way that the Rostovs are going to survive this is if Nikolai marries Rich, and that's a perfect match, but she shoves her feelings down and says, I've got to pack. We've got to pack the essentials and get ready to go because the war is here, and she spends all day doing that. Hashtag bless Sonia. And what are Petya and Natasha doing to help? Absolutely nothing. They're both being giddy, chasing each other, acting like children because Natasha says she's been sad for so long. Petya's glad to be home and with Natasha, someone her own age, his own age that understands him. And as the narrator points out, war is imminent and that makes a lot of children happy. Um, I don't think so, but sure. Chapter 13, the Rostovs are pulling a Marie Kondo and saying, does this object spark joy? Put it in the bin. <laughs> when they should be getting their little butts out of Moscow. Count Rostov is off doing something somewhere, undoubtedly. Countess Rostov is lying down on a chalange in a, um, a vinegar-wrapped head towel because she has a headache. Natasha's feeling down because she didn't do anything to help, but at the same time, she's unmotivated to help because she's still a little bit depressed. Petya went to go see a friend, and still Sonia's the only one packing away the fine china and plates. Thank God Sonia's here running the household. Natasha's laying stylistically surrounded by her old dresses, some that she wore into her first dances and balls in Moscow, and she hears a kerfuffle outside the window. She looks and sees that tons of wounded soldiers are parading through the streets, just looking for shelter and help. Natasha's still a young girl, you know, in this society. She walks up and she sees that the men are talking and the servants are talking to the men going, our masters are leaving, then maybe we can offer this house, but you're going to have to ask them. Natasha goes, I'm the lady of the house. I can make my own decisions. And I say that these men should come and stay with us. She asks the major who smiles and goes, what a generous young girl you are. Then she goes upstairs to ask Count Rostov, who has returned home, and he can't deny Natasha. He goes, that's a wonderful idea. Let them all come in. We have the space. We have the room. Let's help out our fellow man. Rostov's A-plus family. 
everyone's excited and happy now that they're the hospital episode of Downton Abbey. I know that's a stretch, but watch that series. It's a good one, too. But Countess Rostov reveals that Rostopchin has made the police leave, and now there's going to be just a um, private citizen militia force going, and he's handing out weapons to anyone who will defend Moscow from the French. Petya is excited to fight, but Countess Rostov is heartbroken and terrified, so that night she begs Count Rostov to take her out quickly as he can, because she doesn't want to stay around for this bloodshed and fighting and worry about Petya. Just get us out of here. Um, yeah, I've been saying that for the last 20 chapters, but whatever. Chapter 14, with Countess Rostov horrified, everyone starts packing and goes, okay, we have to get our shit together, literally. So all of the Rostov family members join in, and we find out that Natasha has a secret and yet very, like, a keen sense of spatial awareness because she is, aka, the world's best packer. They're worried about packing their tapestries and their dishes and their Persian rugs, and somehow in Natasha's mind, she's able to space everything out so they're able to fit everything into more boxes and shove it onto these characters as they flee from the city. Sonia's just trying to be a pragmatist and saying, Natasha, we can't possibly fit everything, but Natasha somehow manages to fit everything, and she cries tears of joy, saying that I won't be able to leave all of my precious memories and objects behind, and Sonia just looks at her lovingly. All right, kind of cute. On the night before they're supposed to go, Natasha and Sonia have nowhere really to sleep, so they sleep in the setting room, and then at night, unawares to the family because they're all sleeping, a new mysterious wounded man is ushered in by the housekeeper, Marva Kuzminishnya, and you can't pay me to say that name again, I'm just gonna call her Marva. And this wounded man is with his valet, saying we wanted to make it to the outskirts of Moscow, we have family there, but we need to stop here, doesn't recognize the house, and... No one knows that this wounded man is in fact Andrei Polkonsky. He is alive, but barely, and now he's back in the Rostov's house. Oh, who needs telenovelas or soap operas? The real drama is right here in these pages, Tolstoy. Chapter 15, it is officially the last day that Moscow will belong to the Russians before the French invade, and Rostopichin has set up a perimeter of his militia force around Moscow in a last-ditch attempt to save the city. And since everyone is fleeing, the economy is out of whack. It turns out the most valuable possession the Rostovs have are just numerous carts to carry their belongings out when some families don't even have a single cart to carry their own butts out of the town, so they're offered enormous sums for these carts. Count Rostov wakes up, asks if we're ready to go. The servants answer yes, but then they're interrupted by a general and a few of the wounded soldiers going, could you please, you know, spare it in your heart to clear a few of these carts away so we could rest on these carts and be taken out of the city because we're vastly wounded. Count Rostov showing his generosity yet again. Even though it's like rich person generosity, he's like, oh, we can leave a few of the paintings behind. Clear off those carts. Baby steps for the bourgeois. Countess Rostov awakes, and she has of the opposite mindset when compared to her husband. She calls for him and goes, what are you doing? We couldn't have gotten out of here, you know, a little bit quicker if you listened to me in the first place. And now the way you have it, you're leaving our our grandchildren's inheritance behind. We're going to be broken penniless if we make this out alive, if we keep leaving everything behind. But Count Rostov will not hear this. He waves off his wife and Natasha interrupts and goes, Mama, Papa, why are you fighting? Everyone is briefly screaming at each other and Natasha turns to the window and goes, Oh, look who's here. Berg is here. You know, your son-in-law who married Vera. Chapter 16, Berg shows up and waltzes his way literally into the Rostov's home saying, Oh, I'm just in Moscow on business, not that there's an impeding war at our doorstep. He delivers tales from the Battle of Borodino and such, and then asks Count Rostov for some money to buy a desk that someone's selling across the street. Okay, weird, maybe he's not as well-to-do as we thought he is, and everything's not going as smoothly for him as he states. But you know a wooden desk lacking emotion might just be the perfect gift for Vera, because their match is made in heaven, right? A dream pair. That's not true, Jonathan. The only thing wooden about Vera is her personality. Hmm. Oh, my apologies. Mid-read through correction. I think this desk belongs to Count Rostov. He just has it on the lawn to load on the wagons and get out of town. So I guess it's fine. But it certainly doesn't seem like the right moment for window shopping from your relatives. 
And the Count is taken aback by this, like, people are dying, Berg, and all you care about is a death so you can give it to Vera? Um, can't you see there's a lot going on here? And Berg, clueless as always, goes, well, if it's too much trouble, just forget it then. Who would have comprehended that we would have gotten a chapter about a stupid desk in War and Peace? Natasha steps outside for a breather and to see how the unloading of the wagons are coming on and she sees Petya and notices that the wagons aren't being unloaded and goes, what the hell is going on here? Our fellow men are dying. Who told you not to do this? And uh, Petya insinuates that Countess Rostov said that the material possessions would be better than, you know, saving the lives of their fellow men. Natasha rushes inside and goes, Mama, what the hell are you thinking? And Countess Rostov is like midpoint on the vapors, challenge, has a headache. I don't know what to do. I relent, do whatever you want, but first ask your father. And of course, Count Rostov says, it's fine. And then utters this immortal phrase, the eggs. The eggs are teaching the hen. The children are teaching the adults. Yeah, that's all well and good, but I think through common courtesy and sense, you should have cleared off a few of those wagons. But Natasha proceeds to go outside and goes, Everyone, clear off as many wagons as you can. Put all the wounded we can muster on them. We're getting out of here, baby. The courtyard turns into a madhouse with plates and dishes and books and gowns being strewn over the, you know, their front yard, essentially. Natasha's happy, the wounded are happy, they're making way for everyone to sit, they're going, Petya, will you sit on this box? I'll leave the box behind, I don't need it. What about the Count's books? Leave them behind, says the Count, and everyone's happy, but Sonia, you know, in her, against her better judgment, working for the Countess here, making a list and taking the most prized possessions, and somehow finding a way to get them on the cart. Now, I don't know if that's her staying in the good graces of the Countess, because if you remember, she shut her down a few chapters ago, saying that Nikolai was too good for her. Um, but Sonia, good girl, trying her best as always. Chapter 17, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and the Rostovs have to get out. They got all the wounded, everyone's ready to go. They start slowly trekking through the streets of Moscow. But Sonia notices that one of their covered wagons is suspicious. She goes, what's in that covered wagon? She asks one of the maid, who's in there? And they go, my dear, don't you know? This is Natasha's former betrothed, Prince Andre. He's dying. And Sonia goes, what the fuck? Sonia runs off to tell Countess Rostov, and she is like, what does Natasha know? Natasha cannot know about this. He's dying. It is God's will. There's too much going on in the moment, and we don't know how Natasha will take the news. So whatever you do, do not tell her that Andre is dying in our caravan. I mean, there are benefits to both sides of this. If she tells Natasha, then of course Natasha's going to care. They get a final goodbye with one another. Maybe they can reconcile in their relationship. But... On the other hand, everything is happening right now, and if Natasha reconciles with Andre, that could slow them down, and they're already late enough getting out of the city as it is, so please keep this secret, Sonia. The main family is blessing themselves and tearfully saying goodbye to the servants that they're going to leave in Moscow, but it's okay, because Petya's armed them with daggers and knives to defend themselves with. That sounds like fun. Countess Rostov is turning real needy in these last few chapters. They're preparing, like, basically a throne for her to sit on as she's wheeled out of the city and goes, there's too many cushions there. There's not enough cushions there. You expect me to sit on that? And the servants are gritting their teeth, biting their tongue, and saying, just get out of here already. We're done with you. Then finally, the Rostovs are on their way out of Moscow, and Natasha is exhilarated. She doesn't remember being so happy in so long, which is an odd scenario for that emotion, but I'm not here to judge. And she keeps noticing this covered cart that houses Andre. She doesn't know what's in it, but it keeps catching her eye for some reason. Could this be fate? Could this be circumstance? I don't know. Did Natasha have a tracker put in Andre when we weren't looking? Maybe. Maybe it's love. In this bustle of the great exodus of Moscow, Natasha notices someone in the distance and goes, Mother, Father, Sonia, look who it is! That's Pierre! He's dressed differently, but I recognize that face anywhere. We have to stop. We have to talk. But there's no stopping. Pierre hears and sees Natasha calling and is struck dumb by her radiant beauty, and he's at a loss of words for what to say. I think he's coming to terms with he might die here because he wants to stay in Moscow and at least the Rostovs are getting out of here and this is probably their last meeting together. Natasha goes, if I were a man, I would stay with you. Mom, can I stay? And she's like, of course not, dear. You can't stay. And Pierre just ushers out a dumb goodbye and Natasha looks at him longingly 
and this could be the last time, as I said, they see each other. It's very bittersweet. As you may recall, Pierre harbors feelings for Natasha, but he hasn't come to be able to say them to her or reveal what he feels to the family. We have no time to dawdle. We have to leave the relationship between Natasha and Pierre up in the air. But you may be asking yourself, what has Pierre been doing since he snuck out of the house a few chapters ago? Well, in chapter 18, we're about to find out. Well, Pierre has been feeling that his life is overwhelmingly habdash. Everything's in its wrong spot, and he has a mighty need to organize things. So he heads over to one of his den mentor's house, dead mentor, um, Bazdiv. Pierre goes, Bazdiv has some important papers from Yosef Alexevich, who's the old man who was at that um, train station slash uh, Golden Corral, wherever Pierre was waiting for that train or horse one time. And he wants nothing more in his life than to sort the papers of his dead Freemason mentor. Okay, I'm not going to judge on the way you cope. We here at Drink and Read love to read and drink. If organizing, um, you know, fixes your ales, sure. So he knocks on the door and who should answer? Not Yosef Alexevich, but his brother Makar? And Pierre reveals to us, whereas Yosef was the sane one in the family, Makar is mad, he's a drunk, he's unpredictable. This is gonna be fun. Pierre waddles his way into the dusty study and is just organizing the books, looking through the charters and tomes of his old mentor. And then Makar shows up and goes, um, Pierre, what are you really doing here? May I talk? You know, uh, is there anything you need? And Pierre gets it in his head that now is the time for action. Get me some peasant's clothes and a gun. He's helped out and further questioned by Makar's servant Garrison. But oddly enough, there's no warning bells going off in anyone's head that why would Pierre want peasant clothes and a gun? And of course we'll get it to him. And Pierre stays there that night, pacing back and forth, not sleeping. Garrison is happy that he has someone to serve. Makar wants to tell him to get the fuck out of his house, but can't muster the uh, common sense to do so. And the next day, Pierre and Garrison go off to buy a gun, and that's when they run into the Rostovs, and why Pierre was dressed so strangely, taking Natasha's notice. Chapter 19 switches views once again. This time, we're back with Napoleon as he's standing over a hill overlooking the city of Moscow. The weather is oddly perfect, not too cold, not too warm, and Napoleon takes this as a sign that God has shown him the way and he will be hailed as the conquering hero to this Russian hamlet. Napoleon is also struck by the beauty of the town itself, its architecture, its history, and he can't wait to go down there and greet the people of Moscow, even though everybody's gone out the back door. And he starts to daydream, saying when he goes down to Moscow, the people will greet him with open arms, he'll be hailed as a hero, he's going to change the government, be magnanimous, no one's going to die, it's all gonna be peachy keen. And in his daydream, he's expecting a representative group from the city to come to him and talk terms, but it's getting later and later, and everyone behind Napoleon, all his generals and assistants, whatever, know that this is not the case. There's no one left in the city. No one's going to come and talk with him, so they're going to have to go down there, and things are probably going to get gruesome and bloody once again. They're looking at one another going, I'm not going to be the guy to tell him this. Napoleon says, all right, they're being a little bit late. We're going to go down and see what the action is. Come on, gentlemen. And they all breathe a sigh of relief. In chapter 20, Napoleon discovers that Moscow is empty and he's really ticked off because he wanted everyone to come out and kiss his ass. Tolstoy compares the abandoned Moscow to an empty beehive, a beehive without its queen, and how the uh, worker bees who are left are serving no purpose at all. They're just scattering in the remains of a fallen hive. And it's another beautiful example of writing from Tolstoy for two whole pages almost, comparing Moscow to an abandoned beehive and the bees as the people who are left in the city. I would recommend reading it. I would read it here, but it's a lot. And our last chapter of the episode, chapter 21, I'm not going to say is uneventful. It's very short and shows how the militia that's left in the city is trying to defend and resorting to looting. The soldiers still here believe themselves to be the final defenders of Moscow's honor and virtue, but some of them are retreating, and as they're retreating, they're going, hey, there's no shopkeepers here. It's time for a five-finger discount. And the generals who see them stealing first tell them off and then go, well, they're right. This is all free stuff. Let's get looting. 
Then one dude, General Ermolov, pulls a Velma, stop that, I've had enough of this, gets some cannons off some carts away from some horses, and points it at the soldiers who are looting instead. This causes everyone to scatter. What's this, another seemingly decent general? I'll believe it if it continues, but for now I'm skeptical. And on that anticlimactic end, we reach the end of this week's episode of Drink and Read. As always, if you like what you've heard, please feel free to subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast, primarily on Anchor and Apple Podcasts. Uh, just leaving a five-star review and a short little blurb can really do wonders for this little podcast getting noticed, and I deeply appreciate anyone who takes the time out of their busy schedule to do so. If you like hearing me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, stumble through a tome or two and lie about myself a little every week, then feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can follow me on Losing My Mind JK on Instagram, Drink and Read JK on Twitter, or my other podcast, one being Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and my buddies, Matthew Cabrera and Mark Zero Jr., take a look at a few movies and get drizzy drunk in the process. And then if anime slash anime adjacent slash Asian inspired uh, cinema slash Showtime is your favorite? Then check out Anime Was Not a Mistake, where me and my buddy Daniel Ryan go through some anime and anime adjacent films at our leisure. For next week, we're going to finally finish volume three and step forward into the last volume of the book. We've made it through a good chunk of this novel. The finish line is in sight. But what can we expect in volume three, chapters 22 to 34? Well, we're going to see if Moscow does get ransacked by the French and the Russians alike. We're going to catch up with the Rostovs and their flight away from Moscow. We're going to see what shenanigans Pierre is getting up to, and just maybe, just maybe, Natasha and Andre will get a final goodbye that will shatter your heart to pieces. However, if that makes you sad, there are two things I can recommend. A good book and a strong drink, but always remember to drink and read responsibly. Till next time, everybody! Prochier! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.